Wayne Coyne from the Flaming Lips once told us that everyone we know someday will die. If you haven't lost someone already, you will. It's just life. When that happens, you'll know if it's happened or you'll expect when it does, grief will be coming to visit you. Grief is as individual as your relationship to the person that you've lost. But it is rare that we hear another's journey of grief. It's rare that we have an opportunity to compare our grief to another's. And it's even rarer when that story shows how grief can be managed, be tolerated, be endured, be passed through, and be grown from. Indira Naidu has given us an incredible gift with her latest book, The Space Between the Stars, where she speaks about trying to process the grief of losing her sister through reconnecting with nature. And Indira is my podcast guest this week. Before we get there, we're going to have to play some ads. There are ad-free versions of this podcast available should you wish to support us. Patreon.com slash Osher. You can listen to this episode right now with no commercials whatsoever. But until then, let's play the light bill and pay Andy and Rachel and Bree. And then we'll hear something wonderful from Indira. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Nature has been designed to heal us. And what are we doing in return? We spend every moment destroying it. It just doesn't make sense if you really stop. And being still is the solution. And being distracted by our phones is why we're in the mess we're in. If you sit quietly and still under a tree, everything it's doing is to heal you. First of all, it's giving you the oxygen you need to breathe. I mean, who's giving you a bigger gift than that? Name someone. 
you know, this is the crazy thing. If trees gave us free Wi-Fi, we'd we'd love our trees, we'd we'd protect them, we'd plant more. Oh, but all they all they do is give us free oxygen. Oh, sorry about that. I don't really need that. I mean, it, it's it's ridiculous. What are we doing? That is author, journalist, and broadcaster Indira Naidu. I'm Osha Ginsberg, and this is better than yesterday. Welcome to Better Than Yesterday. I'm Osha Ginsberg. Thank you for being here. Today's show is a conversation with Indira Naidu, uh, talking about her latest book, The Space Between the Stars, which is a stunning, a stunning read, and I can't wait for you to hear it. If you've never listened to the show before, thanks for being here. It's a podcast called Better Than Yesterday. It does what it says on the box. It's here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. There's episodes that go all the way back to 2013, and we're here three times a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm here with a guest. Fridays, I'm here with you. And we're here to make today better than yesterday by having conversations with people from all walks of life, from all around the world, some of them experts in their field. But each one of those conversations has something in it that will either make you go, ah, or I didn't know that, or I might try that. And when you do, and you will, because who doesn't want to be a little bit better than yesterday, you go, yeah, today was all right. In fact, it was better. And I'm really grateful for all the support. There's no audience, there's no show. And looking at the downloads, there's audience. So thank you very much for being here. You want to get in touch with me? Super easy. Send off your email at gmail.com. And you can also find me on Instagram. And uh, there's a Facebook group. Uh, where you can talk with other people who listen to the show. And there's all all kinds of things that that you can get involved in. Thanks for all the wonderful feedback about the Allegra Spender episode. The election is on the way. I know I've been pretty election heavy uh, the last couple of weeks, but it's a very fucking important time to be talking about politics. So uh, if you haven't checked that out yet, please go back and check it out. And if there isn't an independent running in your seat, please consider, please consider just looking at who in your area could possibly help us break the deadlock that fossil fuel funding is having in the control of our government, essentially. So just think about that. I'm not, you know, just have a think about that because we're getting a skewed uh, version of reality and uh, we need to shift it pretty quick. But um, happy homework. Here we go. So let me tell you about my guest today. Indira and I do is a broadcaster, a journalist and an author and she currently lives in Sydney, Australia. She's the host of Nightlife on ABC local radio and for many years was on the ABC hosting the Weekend News and the 7.30 Report. She is an extraordinarily accomplished uh, journalist and a spectacular author. Not long ago, Indira underwent a terrible tragedy. She's the eldest of three sisters, each of them one year apart. They grew up as a very, very tight-knit group. And just at the beginning of the COVID lockdown, Indira lost her youngest sister to suicide. Losing anyone, as you will know if it's happened to you, or you can imagine if it's yet to happen, is awful. It's absolutely awful. And no two people process grief the same, even if they are grieving the same person. Yet when I've been through grief from losing people, I've never really heard what it was like for other people who are grieving that person. 
And my grief journey was very much a solo process. Indira has given us an incredible gift by writing one of the most beautiful, heartbreaking, yet loving books I've ever laid eyes on. It's a book called The Space Between the Stars, where Indira documents pretty much week by week the journey of processing the immeasurable grief of of losing someone so close to you so suddenly and in such a traumatic way. And she processes that grief in no small part by connecting with nature. And the book is just, it's a love letter. It's a love letter to not only her, her late sister, it's a love letter to trees, to the clouds, to butterflies, to weeds, to water, to feathers, and to the beautiful parklands in the middle of Sydney in the CBD. And one particular fig tree that uh, is a very, very special tree to Indira. I I can't recommend the book highly enough. It's just stunning. And I'm so grateful that Indira was so generous in speaking with me today because it's it's a gift. This conversation in itself is an absolute gift. Obviously, we do talk about grief and we talk about suicide. So if that does bring up anything for you, please reach out to the support networks that you have your GP or Lifeline in Australia, 13, 11, 14. Indira's book is available wherever you get your books. It's out right now and it's wonderful. It's perfect and I really, really hope it becomes a part of your collection to have on standby to give to those around you when they lose someone for it is, it's that kind of book. It's that kind of book. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with the delightful Indira and I do. Hello, how are you, Indira? Yeah, I'm good. It's, I, I, I think I'm experiencing what many, like, I guess people experience when they meet me for the first time. I'm like, you're a person that I've known in my living room for years and now I'm talking to you. So it's kind of odd, but here we are and I'm... Yeah, we're just friends chatting. <laughs> that's it, that's all. Well, I, I have to, I absolutely have to thank you so much for your book, the space between the stars. The thank you. You can't be what you can't see, and people may not have ever been exposed to another person's journey of grief in such an intimate way. Um, and I was so moved, so moved by this book. And it is an extraordinary gift that you have given people. It is. It comes from ex- astonishing pain, and I. I will probably cry as we speak um, because I can't imagine what it took for you to go, well, this is what I'm going to talk about publicly. What was it that you went, okay, I'm going to do this? What was it inside you that went, I have to share this? It. I look back on that time and I don't quite believe it myself. Uh, It Truly, I mean, it was such a shocking event to even happen in your life in the first moment um, for you, you know, uh, for your sister to take a life like that. But since that moment in time, everything has seemed otherworldly, but in a good and a bad way. It, it, it everything has just seemed like a dream, 
So even the way this book came about wasn't the way books normally come about. Mm. As we know, you come up with an idea, you, you know, knock on doors, you get rejected, and then you go away and lick your wounds. That's sort of usually how the whole book process takes. Or a publisher comes to you and says, hey, you know, I saw that, you know, you've been talking about quitting sugar. Do you want to do a book about it? The way this book came about, we were in the middle of the pandemic lockdown. It wasn't so bad where I was in Sydney. We had restrictions on movement, but in Melbourne, it was complete lockdown. And this was the environment that my sister took a life. It had only happened six weeks. And I got an email from a publisher that I've been working with on and off for eight years. And we always talk, but we'd never come up with an idea before. She had no idea that my sister had died. She had no idea that in my isolation walks, I had met this fig tree in the Botanic Gardens mm. and I was immersing myself with nature. She had no idea about any of that. And she said, do you want to write a book about biophilia and the healing power of nature? <laughs> and I couldn't believe it. I'm reading this email saying, oh, please don't make me do this. No, I want to say no. Yeah. I'm in grief. I can't write a book. But everything was saying you're in the perfect yeah. moment to talk about this. You're you're living it. You have to say yes and you have to do it. I, I couldn't say no. I didn't want to do it at all. And it took me a few months, a lot of emotional blocks, and then eventually yeah. bit by bit it would come. But that's that's how it started, Osh. I mean, crazy. When it, I can't even begin. Like I doubt you probably wouldn't have been even able to travel to, to get down to Victoria to... We, were able- we managed, we were so lucky, we managed to get to the funeral. We had to drive. There were absolutely no flights. Oh, my gosh. We had to hire a car the next morning and, and just drive. Yeah. And then all the, the the towns we went through were completely boarded up. Yeah. We managed to find one hotel that would take us in for the night. Honestly, it was it was biblical. Yeah. It was like, you know, Mary and Joseph well, not being able, only being able to find, you know. But rightly so, Indira. You know, rightly so, because at that time with no vaccine and very little support in the regional areas, a visitor, as we saw, an infected visitor could could be a virus carrier. Throw a ca- community exactly. into chaos. And so, yeah. Yeah. And, but, so we got to Melbourne. Yeah. But unfortunately then there was restrictions on yeah. funeral numbers. So only 20 members of our family and friends could gather. Yeah. And that that was terrible. And it must be so terrible for the, the ones who didn't make the number 20. Yeah. Um, I really know that now, how important it is to physically be together to grieve a, a loved one. So we were yeah. lucky. We we got to the funeral. We got to be together. But we couldn't stay together because yeah. there were restrictions on gathering. And that's really the when I think about the the best funerals I've been to, if there could be such a thing, the best funerals I've been to have been sometimes two or three day events. Uh-huh. You know? And yeah, they become wakes. There's the part. Yeah, and celebrations. Yeah, there's the part, there's the sad part with the, you know, the the person, the body they inhabited either, you know, being cremated or being put in the ground or whatever. And then there's the talking to people you might not have seen for a long time and, and seeing each other and meeting each other in this place of sadness and I honestly, you know, I think about the best funeral I ever went to. It was a Greek, or- Greek Orthodox funeral. Church was packed up in Brisbane. It's a mate I used to play in a band with. And there must have been 400 people there. And his whole family stood at the front. I didn't know this was a tradition. His whole family stood at the front. At the end of the service, every single person went to them. And 
there was tears and crying with every person. And by the time it got to 398, 399, 400, Mm. the family was like, okay. And then afterwards I could see that that had allowed them to meet every person who knew their son and reconfigure and recalibrate. And then afterwards when we were all eating, it was like, okay, okay. And it Mm. was hard. But what was your experience like? As a kid, I mean, you moved around a lot and you lived in parts of the world where death was a lot more common. You lived in, you know, Zimbabwe and South Africa and things like this. As a kid, did you see grief in others? Did you witness your parents grieving? Not really. This really was my first big encounter with grief, Mm. which in a way was unusual to get into your 50s before that happens. And I used to think that that was a good thing, that I'd somehow dodged the grief bullet. And now I realise it's not a good thing because I didn't have any little bits of incremental experience to fall back not on. Not even a warm-up with, with a pet or something? Not really. I mean, we did. You know, my grandparents lived overseas, so yeah. when they passed away we weren't really there and we weren't hugely close to extended members of the family. I had a guinea pig once that died um, and I vaguely sort of remember being a bit upset about that. Oh. There was a cat that we were very close to that did pass away, and that was probably a significant grief, but uh, nothing that comes close to this sort of grief. So I had no reference points at all in my history and in my experience, and I think I'd only seen bad experience of people dealing with their grief as well. You know, I'd I'd seen people who had lost their parent or mother to cancer, and then they'd completely shut down and and they became a changed person. Mm. So I thought... That was the only thing that was the option right. to happen. I I hadn't seen many positive examples of people feeling their grief, acknowledging it, being with it, talking about it, moving through it, accepting it, finding meaning in it. I didn't. I don't actually think I'd found. I can think of one example of that really. So I really thought I'm going to fall off a cliff. I'm going to fall into an abyss, and that's where everyone goes when they have a big grief. I didn't think there was another option until I discovered that tree. <laughs> it is, the, the book is, look, it's it's just poetry, Indira, and it's uh, not only is it, every page is not only a love letter to your late sister, it's a love letter to this extraordinary piece of land in the middle of Sydney, in the middle of the city, mm. and this incredible connection. I guess you described in many ways what I try to find when I'm, trying to be mindful, you know, and the space that the mindfulness creates opens up areas for the other parts of your head to process things, which is a bit tricky to explain to some people, but you wrote about it in such a, in such a beautiful way. Did, I mean, I can understand being worried like, oh, someone close to me has passed away. Here comes the, I'm shutting down. I'm a changed person. This is it forever. Did you, did you find support? Did you find someone to speak with? to maybe guide you to a different place? It was interesting because we were in lockdown here, I I couldn't see any family and friends, Mm. basically, uh, other than my husband, who was wonderful through all of this. But going through his own grief, he'd just lost his mother. And so there was a lot of grief in the household. And I've always been someone that has been very comfortable seeking counselling or therapy or support. I've never felt any embarrassment or shame about that. Mm. So I knew immediately I had to go and find a grief counsellor. And uh, 
I did. Again, within a few weeks, she was surprised that my loss had been so recent because most people don't come to counselling until months and months later, usually an agonising process of of not wanting to Mm. and refusing to. But I said, no, I have to. This is going to be the best way for me to work through this. So I went into grief counselling and I've been seeing this grief counsellor very regularly, um, once once a month, once every couple of weeks, uh, right throughout the last two years. It's interesting. Sorry to cut you off. Is it interesting? Like, if we if we were to have a like, if if you're at work, right, and you were on the way to work and you tripped on the sidewalk and you and you bung your knee, you mm. wouldn't hesitate, but go to the physio and go. Well, a part of my body that I don't know how to make better is is not working properly and it's affecting my life. It's affecting my relationship. I can't cuddle my husband properly. Okay, I'll go find someone who can help me and I'll go into some sort of rehab and work with them weekly until I'm fine mm-hmm. again. Yet when it's a psychological injury, like this extraordinary like split, this chasm between what our reality is and what our, what our reality was and the pain between what we knew and what we now must accept as true, um, we expect that we'll be able to fix that chasm by ourselves. And it, 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 we can't, you know. And I gotta credit you because you're right. People don't until their marriages are falling apart, till they've lost jobs, and they're like, "I've got it. What's got to get to the bottom of this?" I think I also had a different sort of insight into it as well, Osh, because hosting this evening national radio show that I'm still doing, Nightlife on the ABC. I have a million listeners right across the country, but right across all different forms of lockdown over the last two oh, yeah, years. Yeah. So sometimes people in Perth didn't want to hear about the pandemic. Yeah. They were surfing on a beach. Mm. Then people in Melbourne, they couldn't even step out of their homes for a number of weeks and didn't see any family for months. They were just beside themselves. Uh, and then everyone else was in between all around the country. So I had this very diverse group of listeners who were going through from extreme agonising, worst anxiety that they'd ever experienced in isolation to people who just wanted to shut it off and shut it down and didn't want to, you know, think about it. And how to talk to that million people in different states of this Mm. all at the same time, but all of them feeling quite a deep anxiety about what this would mean for them, their families, their futures. That gave me a real insight before this happened to me personally about what, anxiety is, what it looks like, what grief looks like, what loss looks like. And it may, and it was uncomfortable to sit with listeners sharing this stuff with me. I felt like going, I don't want to hear about this. You know, I can't deal with it. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to comfort you. And then I quietly started to realise, no, the important thing is just to be present. Uh, they don't want a solution from me. I don't have a solution to the pandemic. They just needed someone to listen and hear. And that was all that was required from me. And again, it's hard for me because I'm very much a solution person. I want to say, okay, this is how you can fix it. Go off and do this. I didn't have a solution. So that was probably starting my opening up to what grief and loss could mean and how sitting with it was probably going to be my challenge, how to just accept this thing had happened and sit with it and also sit with the universality of it. Mm. The great thing about a grief counsellor is that they've seen thousands of people who have gone through some of them worse things than you're going through right now. And that's such an important thing when you're going through grief to realise it's not only happening to you, Mm. it's happening to everyone, it has always and it will always, this is just the nature of things. 
And I think if you can step out of your grief, that is the beginning of understanding and not being caught up in it as well. So, the, yeah, my counsellor was so incredible uh, in how she was able to take me through that. And you're, you're, you're absolutely right because you are the eldest of, of three sisters and uh, you and your younger sister lost another sister. And it's also interesting to realise that even siblings won't experience a similar grief even though they're grieving the same person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Grief is very singular. The grief you go through is completely different to everyone else's grief. Even though it's the same person that has died or the same incident that has happened to everyone, and I say in the book it's it's like witnessing an armed hold-up at a 7-Eleven, depending on how long you were in the shop, what aisle you were in, what you were shopping for. Everyone looks at that assailant completely differently. Yeah. Oh, no, they had a scar on their cheek. No, 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 they had a tattoo. Oh, they were holding a gun. No, 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 it was a dagger. It's, it's, it amazes you that that was why also having someone independent and a safe place mm. to go and speak to someone is important because while it's great to have family and friends, they're going through their own processing of their own grief. And, and they're also grieving for you. Even if they don't know the person who has died, they're grieving for you just being not quite yourself. You know, you, you're not, you don't have your pep. You know, yeah. you're just a bit mopey all the time. And it can be quite difficult, whereas a grief counsellor is used to all of that. Yeah, I, I, as I said, I turned every page thinking about my three brothers, the entire book. Mm. I turned every page thinking about that. And uh, uh, this is the first time we've ever spoken. We've spoken for, what, 20 minutes and 14 seconds now. And I, that's how long I've known you, per, you know, in, in, a, in this way. And yet every day, every page, I was like, oh, the poor lady. You know, <laughs> Audrey would come in, like I'd start reading a book and Audrey would be in the bathroom. She'd come in, you're all right? I'm like, that's an endearing book. <laughs> she, you know, Why do you keep reading yeah. it? Because it's beautiful, but it's sad and it's amazing all at the same time. And it was the, that you balanced on every page this recognition and this, as you mentioned, you managed to find a way to write to be with the gravity of the sadness but also the possibility of of something shifting because when we're in that deepest of darkest of moments our brain plays a trick on us and goes and this is how it's going to feel forever and that comes with such an extraordinary amount of inertia we kind of feel we can never break out of it and some people never do we all remember the lady who walked around in black clothes 40 years after her husband died you know um what started get you moving? What was the first inkling of momentum away from that space? I was standing under the tree one day, taking my regular ISO walk through the Botanic Gardens, and I just was making no headway with the book. Every time I thought about my sister, every time I thought about her name, Monica, I, I was just overwhelmed by s s such a volcanic grief that it was just this blackness and I thought, this is ridiculous. You can't even cope with your own grief and then you've put this extra pressure to write a book. And I was standing under this tree and I'd never really noticed it before and suddenly it started speaking to me and I looked up and just felt this extraordinary uh, sort of blanket of, of radiance descend on me and I felt hugged and embraced and, and just felt so comforted in that moment. And it spoke to me and it said, if you're having trouble, talking about her and using her name, Monica, why don't you make up another name that will help you relive the magic and the joy of your time together uh, but and also captures the essence of who she was? And that's where I came up with the word Stargirl. And so all the way through the book, 
she is Stargirl and my mid- middle sister is Dreamcatcher. And as soon as I made that breakthrough, I was able to talk about the story and mm. share the joy. And so the book is broken up into, you know, the present, the grieving, the loss, the sadness, and then a memory of this joyous childhood memory when we were so naughty. We used to do such naughty things, really. Uh, And I would share that story in the book. And through that sharing, I would relive the love and the connection with her. And it was just a wonderful way for me to heal at the same time and to remember that even though I felt robbed of of, you know, growing old together, uh, I still had 48 years of memories. It's a lot of time. And, and, you know, I spent time with all these nature guides because the tree then introduced me to the magic and wonders of puddles and feathers and mm. and leaves and clouds. And I and I went um, on an ant hunt with a um, an ant specialist one day and he was telling me about how ants live seven or eight days. And I thought, gee, that's not a long time. That's hardly any, that's a week. Yeah. And that's terrible. But then I thought, yeah, well, they're just used to it. That's their life, you know. There's no court to go and protest to. That's just what they've got. And here I am moaning about only having 48 years with my sister. That's quite a long time in ant years. (laughs) Ant years. Yeah, you you say the trees, you know, spoke to me, but I, I, I... From following your career, Indira, you seem like a fairly rational person. The tree didn't actually speak to you. Uh, what's the, what was the kind of, I guess, the science behind that shift once you took your attention from this deep place of pain, once you took that attention externally and started extending your space away from you and starting to bring some sort of a perspective into I am this, you know, tiny ball of, of carbon-based atoms, you know, for my, my purpose, you know, I'm a 77, 78, 70 kilo, you know, guy, um, but I'm this itty-bitty kind of ball of, you know, blood and muscle sitting on this colossal big rocks hurtling through space. My shit doesn't mean anything. Like, and that that helps me. What did you discover about what happens in our brains when we start to expand our attention away from our internal focus? Mm, so many fascinating things. I spent a day with Branka Spear and she's a visual psychologist. And I made a date with her just to go looking at the clouds, as we all used to do when we were kids. I used to love lying on my back on a picnic blanket and just looking up at the clouds and imagining all the different animals that they were morphing in and out of. I could do that for hours. And I stopped, I've stopped doing that as an adult. So we spent a day doing that. And a couple of things she taught me. First of all, that just what a joyous occupation it is to stare at clouds all day. It was so much fun. And she explained the fact that I was getting so much joy out of it is that it's really important for humans to be in environments where there is a slight movement but not too much movement. This blew my mind. This really blew my mind when you started talking about this. It was fascinating. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, and that we don't like static, and which is why part of our urban environment really grates against us because everything is rigid, concrete, blocks, poles, nothing moves, there's no vibration. But what we love about nature is that there's always a little shimmer, a little hum, a little flicker, a little bit of the trees or the the water coming through a creek. And as humans, those little bits of movement remind us of when we first evolved deep in our DNA, they were all connected to where we'd find water, where we'd find 
food, water holes, you know, where there were forests and we'd find nuts and berries. If there's too much movement, you know, if it's too crazy and too chaotic, again, like our urban life gets, too buzzy in traffic, we get incredibly disturbed and there's too much to take in and our brains overload and we shut ourselves down. But when there's just a little shimmer, it engages us a little, makes us take our um, perception away from ourselves and out of our head, but it's not so much movement that we get distressed by it. So looking at the wind going through leaves and shimmering relaxes us. Looking at clouds slowly change, the way water sparkles, you know, under the sun. That's why we find nature relaxing. I mean, it, it's actually, you know, it's, there's physiological reasons for it. And the knobbly bits of trees, you know, when we look at the knobbles and we look at the branches and the way they branch out, it's called fractal theory. But we see it all the time without understanding it. So everything, whether it's a creek or a cloud or a tree, everything is big, branching out into small. And this fractal pattern we find very relaxing visually to see big going into small. We just don't like seeing blocks of big or just little things. We like big going into small. And again, it reminds us of forests and caves and, and you know, when we first evolved. So when we put ourselves in that environment, even if it's a park down the street, we can still derive all the benefits of being calm and relaxed and, and feeling joyous. It's, it's pretty amazing. And it explains why we always want to flee the cities. When we have holidays, no one says, let's pitch a tent in the middle of George Street, you know. We want to go to a creek or a lake or into the mountains because that's where we be. We want to be innately. We, so, you know, this, this idea of fleeing all the time is just ridiculous. We need to bring nature right where we are all the time. That's what we need. If I remember, Indira, in the book you wrote about an exercise that everyone listening could go out today and do if they just find a tree, there's an exercise that allows their brain to process some fractal theory. Can, can, can you remind me what it is, please? What, well, what I was doing was just following a branch, just, just starting at the beginning of the branch in a tree and just following it all the way down and as it branched off into a limb and then following my eyes, it went into a tiny twig and then it went into a leaf. And just that process of following where it went just hypnotised me and I completely forgot about where I was, what I'd been worrying about. It was just such a beautiful visual and, and and all my senses were completely captivated just by that exercise. It's ex extraordinary that w by simply looking at the growth pattern of a tree and it, and similar, mm. it's the way that a river branches or the way if you see a rivulet at the in a creek or at the, at the beach, it branches in the same way. It's amazing. And that just mm. by passing our eyes over it, some ancient part of our brain goes, ah, oh, all is well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. We're just, we're just these descendants of single-celled organisms that are very easy to please. <laughs> well, the thing is when we've separated ourselves from nature, yeah. that's where we've become unwell and unhinged. We are creatures of nature. We're not separate. And my experience, sadly, having to go through an extreme, extreme grief to, to fully understand that. I mean, I've always loved nature and, you know, I, I garden. I've written books about gardening and I understand the challenges of trying to connect with nature in the city. So I, I wasn't unprepared for it. 
But what happened when I completely let myself go was I would be with my tree, for instance, and after a while I couldn't sense where my skin had ended and where the bark of the tree began. I melded with the tree completely. I mean, our essence is exactly the same, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. I mean, we're made of exactly the same materials. Of course it's my cousin. Of course I should feel a connection to it. Yeah. When you start thinking about it like that, you know, when you start thinking about like we're probably a, across a city right now, but atomic bonds wise, there's there's air in my lungs that has an unbroken chain of atomic bonds through the air all the way to the air in your lungs. Mm -hmm. You know, on a microscopic level. And look, I get it. You know, I like flushing toilets and, and refrigerators. I like my, uh, you know, electric car. I like, I, I like these things. Is there a way to have things like antibiotics and vaccines and toothbrushes and other stuff that allows us to live far better than our ancestors, yet also connect to these things that our ancestors had uh, in their daily lives that allowed them to operate in a far probably healthier level than we do? One of the things that Branka Spear said to me that surprised me because she's a scientist she, and, and scientists don't believe in nature by design. You know, they don't, they don't believe in this sort of usually this divine intervention. Mm -hmm. they're, they're encouraged and to, to question and, and look for uh, scientific explanations. But Branka actually said to me that nature has been designed to heal us. And... What are we doing in return? We spend every moment destroying it. So it, it just doesn't make sense. If you really stop, and being still is the solution, and being distracted by our phones is why we're in the mess we're in. If you sit quietly and still under a tree, everything it's doing is to heal you. First of all, it's giving you the oxygen you need to breathe. I mean... Who's giving you a bigger gift than that? Name someone. I mean, you know, this is the crazy thing. If trees gave us free Wi-Fi, we'd we'd love our trees. We'd we'd protect them. We'd plant more. Oh, but all they all they do is give us free oxygen. Oh, sorry about that. I don't really need that. I mean, it, it's it's ridiculous. What are we doing? You know, <laughs> there's the T-shirt, Indira. There's the T-shirt right there. That's it. That's the concept. That's but you're right. You're you're absolutely right. You're it's astonishing. But the, it, there's this there's this narrative in our political discourse that you can't have both, and that's simply not the case. Mm -mm. It's not the case. It's about like every aspect of our life. It's finding what's sustainable, finding the harmony, finding the balance. We take too much. My tree only takes what it needs. It doesn't, you know, hog all the toilet roll and store it in a cupboard somewhere. It just takes what it needs. And it trusts that the next day there'll be enough toilet roll for it. You know, when there's a big storm, I hide in my apartment and my tree stays out in the storm. It protects itself with its own branches. It gets all its nutrients from where it is. It can't run anywhere. And at the same time, it's protecting not only me when I come and need help and support when I'm going through my grief, but it's supporting birds and ants and other insects. I mean, it's not just looking after itself. And it's doing all of this openly and joyfully. It never says to me, sorry, no time for you today. Off you go. 
uh, check with my secretary when I've got a bed, an, an appointment in my diary. My trees never said that to me. But everyone we know has said that to us at some stage yeah. in our lives. Yeah. Over the uh, – reading your book, it, it it really helped me. I guess the most recent um, experience of grief was when I lost my mum about four years ago, five years ago now. Yeah. And it allowed me to kind of re um, – certainly reassess exactly what you were speaking about before. And honestly, your recollections of we're of similar age, um, you know, we're of similar age, and your recollections of uh, Australia as you were growing up was, it could have been our suburb, and it was beautiful. Oh, really? It yeah. was beautiful to, to, to read that. But the way you wrote about at this, you know, because that's how grief works, you know, it's like, out of nowhere, you remember this incredibly wonderful, joyous thing that you haven't thought about in 40 years. And there it is. And you go, oh, that thing was, oh, they're dead. And then bang, your day's gone, you know. And it allowed me to, I guess, re when reading your story, it was like, oh, I guess that's how it works. And I just trying to make the, trying to allow the memory of how nice things happened to mm. eventually kind of overcome the, how sad it is that, and be okay with the sadness that they're, they're not there. A mate of mine says, mate, it feels terrible right now, but if you do the work every day, you've got to do the work, you've got to do the work, but every day you're just going to put a little weight on the scale, a little weight on the scale. He's talking old school, like liberty justice scales. And one day it'll be, you know, 90, 10, then 80, 20, and then 78, 32, or 22, I can't do maths. And then one day it'll be 51, 50. Do you remember the day that it was, it was no longer as terrible, like, do you remember the first day that it was just a little bit not as bad as yesterday? <laughs> um, it's interesting because I don't know if other people go through this sort of grief, but it wasn't linear for me. Mm. So uh, I, I describe it as puddle jumping in the book. So you have days where it, you're just perfect, everything's fine, no problem at all, happy-go-lucky, jumping around, and then the next day... Oh my God, I, I, I can't go on. It's, it's just so black. And then there'll be another day where you'll have an hour in the morning, everything is so dark, and then the very next hour, I can't even remember anything bad that's happened in my life. It's really weird. That's what I found. It was seesawing quite a bit. But the thing I think that really changed for me, I mean, the writing was such a healing process. But, of course, as an author, then you put the book out there and it's, it is a very personal book, of course, and it wasn't as if I ever thought, how are people going to respond to my grief story? Because I know people are lovely and caring and, and they would go, oh, really sad, sorry. I, I wanted the book not to, to be hopeful. I wanted people to feel healed and hopeful, and that's a big thing to ask of anything, let alone a book you've written about grief and suicide and big things. So that was, I think, hanging in there and, and now that the book has been out for a couple of weeks and it's just been so wonderful hearing stories about people saying you've healed me uh, I lost a brother to suicide 30 years ago I've never been able to talk to anyone about it uh, reading your book hearing your story makes me feel I've got permission to share and then they tell me their story and they said, I feel so much better being able to say that. Or someone has just lost a parent through cancer or couldn't see a grandparent in the pandemic in a nursing home and said, that's the loss I've been feeling and that's, you know, now I understand, you know. Or someone who just 
loves their tree in their back garden or someone else that loves a tree. And that has been probably the most meaningful way for me to move through my next stage of grief where I can now see myself coming out of this grief into a really good place and that the joy that it's been able to spark in people and, of course, some of the sadness and reminding about their losses as well, but over overwhelmingly that, that joy, I mean, it's that, I have to admit, is such a relief to me because that's what you hope but you just don't know how people are going to respond and that is part of my healing. That's how I'm feel, finding meaning. So even though I've gone through this terrible tragedy, I've lost my sister, I do feel this book and it now starting conversations. People are talking and feeling more comfortable about sharing their grief. I think that's only going to be a good thing because when you hold your grief and you don't confront it, I think it eventually will bubble up in other ways in your life. I, I don't think it's something that, you know, you can just push away and go, yep, that's okay, move on. Everyone loses a parent and, you know, that's just life. You have to, as you said, you have to do the work. And when you do the work and when you work through that grief, the joy that starts coming and, and filling in where the grief used to be, I just wouldn't have understood how that can be. In many ways, I feel closer to my sister now than I did before. And I wouldn't have thought that that was possible. We'll be right back with Indira Nodu in just a moment. If you uh, do like this show, if you'd like to support this show, you can. Just tell a mate. Share this episode with someone. Text it to somebody. Share it with someone. Tell somebody next time you see them about the show. That really, really helps us. But if you really, really want to support the show for not a lot of money at all, like the cost of a half a cup of half a smoothie in my neighborhood at least, for the cost of half a smoothie, you can get ad-free episodes of this show each week. And uh, for a little bit more, you can get full video episodes. So you get to see me and Indira having this full conversation, which is it brings a whole other level to it. And I really, I'm really grateful for the people who've jumped on board for that. So if you want to do that, patreon.com slash osher, O-S-H-E-R. And until you do that, I'm going to need to play some ads. So we'll be right back with Indira and I do. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Would it be okay, and you can say, I'm not okay with that, would it be okay if we could talk about what you thought it would be like to lose someone to suicide and then what it was actually like. Would we, would we be okay to talk about that? Just because there might be people listening who have 
sure. lost some of the suicide sure. and then they just hearing because you do kind of touch on it in the book and you it, it is broad it is broad strokes yeah i look i've never thought about what it would be like to lose someone to suicide um never really crossed my mind even though i knew my sister was struggling with her mental health because she was just so high functioning mm. she managed to mostly keep everything together. It's often know. the case, yeah. It's often the case. She had a wonderful husband, a daughter, mm. a, a, a brilliant career. She was incredibly smart. And I think we all assume, you know, you'll have bumpy, rocky bits, but you'll work yourself through it. Mm. And even though she didn't get the support she should have got and she wasn't on any medication and she probably should have been, she was very smart and she really did mostly convince us that she would find her way to where she needed to get to. Mm. So, no, it never really crossed my mind. Um, and so even as a journalist, when I'd covered this as a story and I'd heard stories about it and you think, oh, that, that's just terrible, that's just how would you ever cope and recover from any of those things, I never put myself in that place and I never thought it was something that I'd have to go through myself. Mm. Um, so when it did happen, it it is just a complete blindsight. It, it, mm. It's so surreal. And just like the grief cycle, you go through shock, denial, you know, anger, um, sometimes acceptance, then you go back into the cycle again. Mm. And I just knew I had to find meaning in why this had happened because going back and asking yourself why, like any big thing that happens to you, I think is pointless in a way because it's happened. Yeah. So if you keep saying to yourself why, 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 you're not going to find an answer. And even if this person was still alive, they wouldn't be able to give you an answer either. I mean, that's the thing about mental health. Uh, it doesn't make sense. I mean, that's why you need to get help and support because you're not thinking straight, you know, you're not really seeing things as they really are. But it can be very hard to convince people when they're in that state. They, they think, you don't know what it's like to be me. You don't know what's going on in my head. And, yes, we don't. But I, I'm a big believer that there are ways to work through this, but you need to ask for help, you need to get that help, and you need to do the hard work because it, it is hard. Yeah. It's really hard to go back and face whatever the, all the different things that have happened in your life. We all have this bag of shadows, I call it in the book, that we keep tossing things through. Oh, I'm too busy for that. Oh, I don't want to deal with that. I'd rather have a drink than actually think about that. <laughs> and that bag gets more and more full. And eventually it overflows. And that's when you have the problems in your life. So my advice is to do the work as it happens, you know, yeah. and try not to listen to the people around you or your peer groups who say, mate, don't worry about that. Let's just go out and do this instead. Listen to that inner voice and that voice is saying, I'm not feeling right. I'm, I'm feeling a bit sad, you mm. know. Um, and the help is there and you can yeah. work through it and, and come out yeah. of it. I mean, yeah. it does happen. It does happen. So... It's terribly tragic for the family left behind in these situations um, because, yes, if you stay in the why, you're never going to get the answer. So for me it was about just remembering the great times, you know, the, the, the privilege it was to know her, the time we got to spend together. Um, so many people who have read the book say, I wish I'd had a sister. You know, they grew up with as a, an only child or mm. they only had a brother. And... 
I think, yeah, that was a privilege. I know mm. what it's like to have a sister. I know what it's like to have sisters. I know what it's like to have siblings. Did I use those 48 years and suck the marrow out of every one of those days with my siblings? Maybe not. Maybe I let myself get too busy or, you know. Who the does? Come on. Distance. Who does? We expect they'll always be there. We do. You know. And so that has really changed. I'm, I'm much more grateful. Mm. Every moment I spend with anyone, whether they're my sibling or not, I think this is a precious moment in time. I'm not rushing to something else. I'm not planning on where I want to be or what I want to get out of whatever. I'm trying to just be as present as I can. And my tree has taught me that. The birds have taught me that. Now is all we know we have. We spend too much time in the past, too much in the future. The present is a really good place to be. And so when the grief comes knocking, you might be, I've got to go from here to there, I've got to have a meeting here, I've got to get in the car, I've got to go to that, and the grief says, not today, Indira. That's the meaning that you remind yourself of. That's, ah, yes, but now this is the meaning I found from this moment and this is the direction I'm going. Is that how you get out of those moments? Yeah. uh, That's the thing. I mean, it, it can pop up when you least expect it and least want it to be there as well. And there are a couple of things that I do for myself, you know, when I feel a little bubbling of grief and the grief isn't getting as as deep and profound and big swings as it, as it, as it used to be. And it does. It does soften over time. It still has only been two years, which is really quite a recent grief for, yeah. for such a, a, a sudden death like this. But it does get easier. And one of the things I do for myself is, and my grief counsellor taught me this, is I hold myself. I put one hand over my heart and one hand just across my arm and it grounds me. I feel my heart beat, but I also feel the solidity of my body as well. And I close my eyes, 20 seconds, 30 seconds, and that's it. And I, and I feel it just calm down again, you know. And it's not as if I want to push it away. When I've got time, I will sit and think, I'll burn a candle I'll watch the sunset, I'll sit with my tree and try to remember all those moments of my day and and work them through because they do yeah. need to be addressed at some stage. Yeah. But it doesn't overwhelm me in that moment. It doesn't completely derail me. I can still carry on with my everyday. It's it's interesting because throughout, throughout the book, the, com- the common thread of all your explorations, whether they be the extraordinary feather hunting adventures or the <laughs> the, the weeds. I was so excited when he came on Gardening Australia the other day. I'm like, Audrey, it's the guy from the book. There he is. <laughs> I was so excited. <laughs> um, every one of those things is, uh, I guess it's a trick to snap your brain out of this um, – this pain is all there is and this will be here forever. This idea that this is permanent and this is global and this is just, it's all about me. That's that the, our brains go into this moment that is personal, permanent and global to, to try to protect us. As you mentioned before, these are the things that helped us survive to this point. But it's these things that you do that allow you to go, hang on, there's this tree. There's a cloud that looks like a dragon. Oh, now it's a turtle. Oh, now it's a skillet. You know, these are all wonderful ways to go, hang on, it's not. Hang on, it's not. And that we can get trapped in making anything mean everything, you know. 
but by using these techniques of either holding yourself or getting out of your body or being of service to others, like writing this book, that all helps us get away from this this um, this trap, really. Yeah, the and, rumination. Yeah, which is, I understand yeah. why it exists. I've been trapped in it. I've been trapped yeah. in it. I was personally- I mean, I was, kite flying. It, honestly, yeah. it's an answer to almost everything. What kite, a joy that is. Kite flying, man. How good are kites? Yeah, they're brilliant. How good are kites? My little Lego men used to go on some adventures, let me tell you, Indira. <laughs> I'm they sure. They really did. I got those guys like, right, like way up there. It was cool, man. <laughs> I was nine. <laughs> I spent like this pre-iPad, like that was my September holidays. And yeah. I come back refreshed. <laughs> like, like it's Brisbane. There's nothing on television in <laughs> yeah. Se- September holidays. We had so much fun. That's the thing. We've just got to try to just retain that yeah. sense of joy and wonder and awe that we had as children we, and we lose it as adults, you know, and there's no reason for it. What would you like to see, what would you like to see happen like, you know, around, you know, the, the, the education space in, in the techniques that you have discovered that brought you such relief and have helped others, um, you know, what would you like to see um, our community do with what you've discovered? First of all, plant more trees. <laughs> Good, because uh, I've got no Wi-Fi and I really oh, yeah, need. there you go. Oh, no, the oxygen ones. Oh, yeah, we'll yeah, have some o- of them the too. Oxygen we'll ones. Fine. Um, I think, yeah, this, to get that balance back, you yeah. know, uh, and so much of that is just immersing ourselves in nature more, you know, to make sure that we set aside time during our day to sit in the garden or, you know, sit with our plant on the balcony or the little pot on the on the windowsill, whatever it might be, the little bit of a live nature around yeah. us to value it, be with it, love it. Because, you know, one of the big challenges we have with the climate emergency, the reason we're allowing this to carry on, to keep getting worse and worse, is because you will not save what you do not love. And we just don't love this enough. You know, my tree now is so precious. I I get frightened about how ferocious I get about looking after it. And I hate seeing trees, uh, cars parked on its roots on the road where it's growing. It's like, do you realise how that's hurting the tree? I talk about these cops that were under the tree one day with guns and I just didn't like the violence, the implied violence, their guns near my tree. And I said, go away, leave my tree alone. I mean, I'm really protective of it now. And imagine if we had billions of people feeling the same way. What's happening on the planet just would stop happening tomorrow. It, it's, it's gobsmacking the, the disconnect. And as someone who's worked at the, you know, <laughs> coalface of journalism <laughs> for most of her career, it, it must be tough seeing, you know, cause and effect playing out and at the same time seeing people, those in power, do nothing, it must be difficult for you. This world that they work in, it, they're horrible worlds. I mean, you know, we don't, we get the politicians we've got because they're as removed from the naturalness in their worlds as like everyone else. They live in concrete buildings, they live on planes, they don't see their family, um, they can't sit out in the garden. Twitter, social media, it, you know, they're an extreme version of what we all live and then we worry why we don't have the politicians we want and, and why, you know, the, 
the country is the way it is. Uh, I think we need to give everyone permission to just sit and be and be present. And nature will will show you the way. Nature will show you, you know. You will know what it's like to fill your lungs with real good oxygenated air. There are parts of Sydney I go to, I I have to shallow breathe because there's so much pollution in the air. Nature tells you. And, it, and, and if we stop and be still and quiet, we can feel it in our lungs ourselves. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's pretty obvious. I don't know. We think we've, we've conquered nature in the, work, the way we're living, these buildings, uh, that we're supreme beings with these huge brains. But if we just stopped for a couple of days, and as we did during the pandemic, but even stopped longer, Nature would reclaim everything. The opera house, the Harbour Bridge would be covered with moss, it would be covered with vines. It, it, the only reason it isn't because we clean and we spray and we disinfect. Uh, nature will reclaim everything and eventually it'll reclaim us too. But by then, for most of us, that'll be really sad because it won't be the type of world that we want. We, we have got options now and opportunities to live the joy now. I mean, why wait? Why wait till tomorrow? I want to be joyous right now. <laughs> yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and I remember as a little kid, you know, thinking about that. I remember when I learned that the sun would eventually burn out, I was terrified. 800 billion years away, but I was still terrified. Mm. How have you come to be with that? Yeah, nature will eventually take all of it and none of us will matter. How have you come to be with that? Because we have this idea that we'll be permanent and everything we build will be permanent and we'll always be there and all our family and friends will be there. How have you come to be with the impermanence of that? Of course, I want to survive. I, I want my children, my grandchildren, everyone to survive and, and get to love and live this because it is quite beautiful. Life is, wow, you can't make it up. Life is just so, so amazing. Uh, so I want everyone, every human to experience that. But when I sit with birds and ants, as I have in the last few years, I have no more right to this world or nature than an ant does, than a bird does. I'm not prioritised. I'm not special. I'm not flying first class, you know, and they're all, you know, in cattle class or anything like that. We're, we're all on the same ship hurtling through the galaxy. Hey, we're all on the same ship. We all go down together. <laughs> so let's help each other. You know, they're doing their best to help us. You know, they're picking up and decomposing stuff and creating soil that's nurturing plants that we eat. Birds are doing all of that as well. They're, they're quietly there helping us. And what do we do? We stomp on the ants and we destroy the habitat of the birds. It's like, wake up. All these trillions of creatures are creating the planet for us. Yeah. And uh, that's a, it's a difficult thing to reconcile because we've been told this lie that we can't look after our environment and have safe drinking water or electricity or, I don't know, an iPad or whatever. But it's it's not... That's not the truth. There's ways to do it. And we don't have to wait for anything to get invented. It's, as you mentioned, we just got to make people want it enough. <laughs> yeah. And, and just start communicating and talking yeah. as well. 
you know, put the phones away for a bit and just have a chat to the person in the train next to you. Yeah. And maybe take five minutes today to go and look at the branch of a tree. Yeah. <laughs> I can't thank you enough for your time today, Indira. This oh, has been, been my pleasure. Exquisite. My pleasure. It's been exquisite to speak with you. And thank you again for this absolute gift. Oh, thank you. Thanks for reading it. Thank you. That was Indira Naidu, and her new book is called The Space Between the Stars. It's so beautiful, and I really, really hope you read it. As I mentioned earlier, it's it's the book that you'd want to be able to give someone who's just lost somebody close to them. It's stunning, and it's a great in case of emergency break glass kind of book, you know what I mean? And it's wonderful and it's poetic and florid and beautiful and achingly heartbreaking, but also equally beautiful. And it's a wonderful read. And I'm so grateful that she wrote it. And I'm so grateful she came on here to talk about it. And you can get it wherever you get your books. Thank you so much, Indira, for coming on the show. And thank you so much for listening. Big thanks to Andy Ma, who cut this episode. Rachel Barrett, the executive producer of everything. Bree Steele on research and support and... Um, Toehider who made all the music. I'll see you on Wednesday. Until we speak then, sleep well and dream of beautiful things. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.